Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. Before we jump into our Hebrews message this morning, I want to make a bit of a quick announcement. Um, in light of the, the vaccination certificates that are being mandated in the province of Ontario, uh, we want to be clear that we as a church are not uh, obligated from, uh, we're, we're exempt from requiring vaccination certificates uh, for anybody that wants to come attend one of our services, for anybody that wants to serve in one of our Sunday services. And and as the uh, opinions about these vaccination certificates are are pitting people against each other, pitting values against each other, legitimate values for sure, in everything we do as a church during this difficult season, we are maintaining Christ as Lord and we are pursuing his values as our highest values, one of which is the unity of the body of Christ. So I want to read a couple of passages of scripture. The first is from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verses 2 and 3 says this, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And Philippians 2 verses 2 to 4 says this, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So how do we do that as a church? We're doing that by not turning anybody away. We'll continue to care for one another by maintaining social distance, by wearing masks while we're indoors, by maintaining all of the safety protocols. And if you're, if you're symptomatic of COVID-19, I mean, everybody knows now, you, you stay home. Uh, if, if you feel unsafe because you have a, a medical issue, no pressure. We're not asking you to come join us. We're maintaining our online stream so you can watch from home and, and participate as much as you can on that. So. If you have any questions about this sort of statement today, you can feel free to email me, fred at crosslands.ca, or you can email our pastor's committee, which is pastor's committee at crosslands.ca. So with that, uh, we'll jump into the message today. Uh, When I was little, uh, I was a very, very good boy. I rarely did anything wrong, although sometimes my parents thought I did. And uh, I remember a couple of times, a couple of times where I did something that probably wasn't that ma- bad, right? It probably wasn't, but it blew up. And, and my mom got all mad at me, and, and I'm crying, and I have a fit, and all of that. And at the end, uh, she, she would want a hug from me. And I'm going, I don't want to hug you. I'm still mad at you because you were mad at me. You ever have that with somebody? They, they want to like get back together. You're going, I'm not sure I want to do that. Last week, we talked about God accommodating culture because he loves humanity. And so he accommodates our understandings, our cultural expressions. And then what we believe, what we practice it, over time has resulted in accumulation of cultural practices and cultural beliefs. And sometimes what happens in that accumulation, a distortion emerges about how we see God, how we view God. You ever read a, a book? People don't read that much these days, but a lot of times in a book at the beginning, you'll see a dedication. It's very, very common. I, I found some online, okay? Here's some book dedications. Here's one. To Rachel, who dealt to the worst game of settlers of Catan in the history of mankind. Here's another dedication. To my mother, Belzy, I would have made a terrible doctor, mom. People would have died. Okay, here's another one. To my wife, Marguerite, and my children, Ella Rose and Daniel Adam. 
without whom this book would have been completed two years earlier. <laughs> Do you know where dedications come from? It comes from a culture in which people with literary skill or artistic skill were supported by a wealthy person in order to, for them to pursue that. Mozart didn't have to harvest fields of wheat because a wealthy person, his talent was recognized and he was supported by a wealthy person and it was a reciprocal relationship. So he was able to produce his masterpieces and in response, his works would be dedicated to his patron. That's where the dedication comes from. It is, the system is called patronage. Somebody sponsors you or supports you and then in the final product, you give a dedication to that person. This was in the culture of the ancient Near East, the culture in which the New Testament texts were written. Patronage was, was almost the, the dominant economic system. You had wealthy people, you had poor people, and you also had social stratification. You had people that were sort of at the bottom and people that were at the top. And uh, poorer people could be supported by a patron and the expectation. So for example, a, a wealthy person might own land and a poor person might work the land. And in response, they would give a portion of their harvest to the landowner, not quite a tax because it wasn't money, but they were also expected to respond with loyalty and honor. Sometimes you would have patrons that would be immensely wealthy. They might be the wealthiest person in a city and they might earn the, the, the title or the understanding that they were not just a patron, they were a benefactor. They were somebody that was a benefit to the whole community. And as such, they might take on the responsibility of um, town-wide projects, maintaining the roads. If it was today, you know, plumbing and electricity and all that other stuff. It wasn't this democratic system. And, and so in response, they might put up a statue to this person in honor of that person. And so this is, this is how things worked. I think of, um, sometimes you'd have a gap, right? Somebody is, is so poor, they're in a completely different social status than the benefactor. And if they were, wanted to appeal for help, they couldn't approach directly because they weren't socially high enough on the ladder. So there would be somebody that would go in between and that person was called a broker. They would, they would negotiate between the patron and, and the person needing the help. And of course they would get a little bit of a cut because that's how they facilitated the process. And so a lot of this stuff is kind of gone in our culture, but a little bit of it remains. We still have the words patron. We, could, we say, don't patronize me, okay? Don't pretend that you are above me. Don't patronize me. You also have somebody who owns a shop. They might say, thank you for your patronage, which means thank you that you are the person that is supporting my business. Even more directly, if, if, if you're an online content producer, whether web comics or, or music or, or podcasts or academic material, you can, you can be supported on that through a, a website called Patreon. Guess where the word Patreon comes from? It's patronage voluntary support of the person who is producing the content. Then we also have brokers. We have brokers if you want to get a mortgage, if you want to get insurance. You don't talk to the company directly. You have a broker who acts upon, on your behalf and represents the company to you. And of course, they get a little bit of a cut. That's how they make their living. So we have these, these sort of holdovers. Uh, so there, there's a story in the Bible, and I always used to be confused by it. There's a Roman centurion in, in, in the nation of or in the Roman province, I guess, of Judea. And so they're, they're occupiers of the land. And he has a servant that he is really, really loves. And, and the servant is sick. And I always thought, like, he can't even be bothered to get out of his house and go see Jesus to ask him for healing. Just, like, that's kind of the lazy way out. But that's actually not what's happening. 
What he's, he's making the statement by sending somebody else to say, I'm not worthy of approaching you directly. So even though we are the rulers, the occupiers of this land, I recognize that you as the Jewish Messiah are that much higher than me. I'm guessing that the servant he sent would have been Jewish. It's, it's a statement saying, I have to send a broker because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. That's what he says. I'm not worthy to have you come in my home. So he sends a messenger in between. There, there's the sense in the New Testament that given that understanding, the, the highest patron of everything is God. God is the benefactor. You see how that fits? God is the benefactor and the broker is Jesus. That's how, that's how it's sort of positioned. Now what, anybody ever seen the movie A Knight's Tale? Brutal movie, bad, really, really bad movie. And it's not just because it's completely anachronistic. Like when they're having the jousting and they're singing, we will rock you. Okay, come on. But it's also because it completely ignores all of medieval culture. It's almost like it's a 20th century, 21st century story in medieval costumes, because that's what it is, medieval or contemporary values in medieval costumes. And, and, and one of the reasons they, they ignore, one, one of the things they ignore is that, that social distance. See, there was an economic system in the, in the Middle Ages. It was patronage times a thousand. That was feudalism. We call it feudalism. And I don't want to teach a history class today, but it was basically that idea of, of layers of patrons and benefactors and, and people working underneath them, a landowner, a knight. They would own the land and, and they would be the patron for everybody working underneath them. They would require their loyalty, uh, their honor, and a, a portion of the crops. And in turn, they would give them protection and allow them to work the land and all of that. So feudalism, Wikipedia says this. It was a way of structuring society around relationships that were derived from the holding of land in exchange for service or labor. Formalized, highly structured patronage. That's how the Middle Ages worked. And so what happens in the Middle Ages, um, people were figuring out Christianity, not just figuring it out, they were, they were trying to apply it to their culture in the way that people understand. And so in about the 1300s, somebody wrote a whole lot about this and, and described God as the highest benefactor who deserves the highest loyalty. And in his cultural interpretation, he says, when we sin, when we go against God, we are actually denying him the honor that he is due because he's the benefactor. He deserves our honor because he's our patron, because he's a benefactor. But when we turn against him, we are denying him the honor that he's due. And he, and he requires satisfaction in that system. The implication is God is angry because of this, because of the failure to honor him. So it sneaks in the idea of, of, of pagan sacrifice. In, in a pagan sacrifice, you would offer a sacrifice to the God you worship in the hopes of appeasing their anger. A lot of people have, have looked at Christianity and, and the sort of the practice of Judaism before Christianity and described it that way, but that's not accurate. That's pagan worship, the appeasement of an angry God. So we understand Jesus died to reconcile us to God. But maybe if God's that angry, I don't want to be reconciled to him in the same way I didn't want to give my mom a hug. Right? And for all, a lot of us, this is an understanding that we have grown up with either explicitly or implicitly. God is angry at you. Jesus died so he would no longer be angry at you. 
When I was uh, graduate high school, I, I, I um, immediately went to York University, which was a year and a half mistake. But anyway, when I, when I started going there, um, I was sort of introduced to modern Jewish culture to, to a small extent. Uh, we had a kosher restaurant on, on campus, which was kind of cool. And it was only a couple of weeks in that we, we were getting these mysterious days off that I had no idea. One was Rosh Hashanah. I'd never heard of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is Jewish New Year. In fact, it's coming up this Wednesday, Rosh Hashanah. And all of a sudden, hey, no classes, great. Uh, another one that I had heard of, which is a week later, next week, Wednesday, is Yom Kippur. And I'd heard of that one. The Jewish, uh, the Hebrew word Yom means day, and Kippur means atonement. It's a day of atonement. It's described in the Old Testament. The day of atonement. Here's a question. What does atonement mean? Because Kippur means atonement. What does atonement mean? And we have an understanding, a definition of atonement, which is to pay for something. You did something wrong, somebody's got to pay for it. And part of that is, well, if you just assume that to be true, what's happening is something's getting lost in the translation. When I was growing up, uh, my parents had a book called Kingdom of the Cults, and it was a, it was a real fat book, and I think I read through the whole bit because the whole book was kind of sensational, and it described all these like sort of belief systems that were like Christianity, but it told you why and how they were all wrong. And I remember one of them, but it's, it's not something I remember, but it was something a little bit like Church of the Living Light. You know how they, they have these weird sort of organizations. And one of the accusations of it is that they have, they have distorted the idea of atonement because they've taken the word atonement and said that it means at-one-ment. And really, atonement is propitiation. Okay, I'm not intending to throw a whole bunch of multisyllabic words at you today, but propitiation is the idea that somebody has done something wrong, somebody has to pay for it. And so what this book was saying is that they're doing it wrong because atonement is not at one minute, it's somebody's got to pay for it, and that's what Jesus did. He paid for it. I looked up the root of the word atonement, and it's a word that was fabricated, all words are, but at, at one point somebody said, we need to translate this idea that comes from Jewish worship and early Christian worship that wasn't in English. We need an English word for it. And they say, they created a word by putting these three words together, at one mint. The word atonement was crafted to mean at one mint. That is what it means in English. It means reconciliation. At one mint. We don't want to get it wrong. So what does Kippur mean? I mean, first of all, let's hearken back to last week. At one mint, reconciliation happens in this tent of worship that we talked about last week. If you missed it, go back on YouTube um, or, the, or the new platform that you can find on our front page, crossins.ca, and, and the, the old messages are there. And there, there was, we talked last week about the, there was this tabernacle, this tent, and it was a model of a heavenly reality. And this, this reunion with God, this reconciliation happens there, not just in the tent, but at a very specific place in the tent. The specific place, I'm, I'm going to read a, a verse from Exodus. Exodus 25, 22. Um, last week we read a verse from Exodus and it uh, talked about God describing the pattern of the tent, of the tabernacle. And it goes on, it says, I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim 
that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. God will meet with Moses, and all of a sudden, we're throwing these words that we maybe don't know what they mean, atonement and cherubim. Cherubim it would, would be like the, the Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew version of an angel, okay? Don't picture Greek like Cupid, because they were scary beings. Um, I mean, when they approach somebody, they always say, don't be afraid, and I think there's a reason for that. There's actually a pretty good depiction of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They did a pretty good job. And so you see this gold box with a cover on it with two angels with wings overstretched, outstretched. And in the center of that, that lid was called the atonement cover. And it's special. There was an empty space on this lid between the two angels that did not have an idol on it. Most pagan worship, when you worship a god or a deity, it would be represented by an idol. And there wasn't, there was an empty space and that's where God would meet in the atonement, God's, th God's throne. This is where God was. I remember growing up and, and we had these little Bible tracts that were very intimidating and scary. And there was one, it was the most popular one called This Is Your Life. And the idea was, as you read through it, if you don't turn to Jesus, then one day you're gonna be before God's great judgment throne. And, and there was a picture of like this white throne with this white glowing figure. And they're gonna broadcast your life on a screen, all your bad things you've done and shameful moments and all that. And everybody's gonna look at it. And if you don't want that to happen, then you better turn to Jesus. And it's, this is saying that where God positions himself is on the Ark of the Covenant, the place where we meet with him. That's his throne. The word for that is Hebrew word, kapareth, related to kippur, atonement, atonement cover, kapareth. But the word kapareth is related to a word that means cover, bribe, Ransom, payment, substitute. The same word was used when God told Noah to build an ark and he said, seal it, cover it with pitch. That's the same word, cover it. It's a covering. Is it, a, is it just a covering of the box? Well, yes and no. There's, there's a lot of depth of meaning here. When, when, when Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but the person for whom he was named, when he translated the Hebrew scriptures into German, he translated that word kapareth, the cover, as mercy seat. Mercy seat. And a lot of translations will use the term mercy seat, and that's Martin Luther's influence. Now, I'm not sure he meant seat as chair. I wonder if he meant seat as a position. Like if you have a seat in government, it's not referring to the chair you sit in. It's referring to your rightful place. God's rightful place is a place of mercy in this holy place in the tent. It's where we meet him. God's throne, although God judges, he does judge. He's the highest standard. But his 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 place of interaction with us is a place of mercy, not condemnation. A place of mercy, not condemnation. Hebrews 9, 22, 23, and we're, we're gonna really try to delve into this a little bit. Um, in the beginning of the chapter, the author of Hebrews says, um, uh, there's all the details about the tabernacle, and we, we, don't have, we, don't, we can't deal with all of that right now. We can't deal with all the details, which makes you wonder what he wants to say. But he does talk a lot, a lot about the tabernacle and this, this Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews 9, 22, 23, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We'll talk about that. 
That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So here, here we see sacrifice, blood sacrifice. It's, it's not so much a payment for sin. It's not a payment to compensate for the wrongdoing you've done. It is a payment, it, it's a payment for purity. We have to be pure in God's presence, and we're not. And so the sacrifice would be this substitute. It would purify. Uh, there's an image of sin being placed on an animal, and this is also applied to Jesus. Sin being placed, our sins being placed on Jesus, our sins being placed on an animal in the Old Testament. But that animal was never sacrificed, because you only sacrifice a clean animal. The animal on which the sins were placed was a scapegoat that was kicked out of the camp. Only clean animals were sacrificed so that we could become purified by the sacrifice. That was the intent. It, oh, that, that purification opens the way for us to be with God. That's why it's a ransom. That's why it's a payment. It's, it's a payment for our purity. A covering. That's what it's for. Now here's, why, here's where the, the, the real difference is. The other way of looking at it, that medieval way, was the sacrifice stops God from being angry. But that's not what the sacrifice was for. The sacrifice doesn't affect God, the sacrifice affects us. The sacrifice doesn't affect God, the sacrifice affects us. It's not to appease his anger, it's to purify us. In the Old Testament, this is what it says in the passage we just read, the blood of animals was for, for ceremonial or physical purification. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but it's really weird. We understand why the earthly tent might need to be purified. Why does a heavenly tent need to be purified? Did you notice that? It needs to be purified by better blood. Why does the heavenly tent need to be purified? That's really odd. There's a clue here. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14 says this. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so we can worship the living God. Jesus said you will worship in spirit and truth. We worship in spirit, and that's what needs to be purified, our spirits. The spiritual place of meeting. The barrier is not physical or ceremonial between us and God. The barrier is in our conscience. God is not angry towards us. God loves us, but we can't approach him because of our shame, because of our sense of guilt, because of our willfulness, because of our selfishness, because of our fear. That's what the problem is. We're inadequate. In fact, the next verse, which isn't going to come up on the screen, describes Christ as a, as a ransom. Uses that term. In some um, other translations, we use New Living Translation, but other ones say he, he entered by his own blood to enter and purify. See, this is what it comes down to. Death, Jesus' death does not make forgiveness possible. It isn't that God can't forgive us without Jesus' death. It's that Jesus' death is the act of God forgiving. Jesus' death is the act of God forgiving so that we can be reconciled to him. 
God loves you, wants to be reconciled to you. Jesus' death enacts his forgiveness, that bearing the cost. So Jesus can purify us so we can know God. There's a, um, I saw this recently. It's, it, there's, a, there's a couple of pictures that have gone viral online and uh, the details are kind of scant. Uh, but the story is something like this. There's a kid riding his bike and he crashed into a guy's car, brand new expensive car, and he dented the car. I mean, that's kind of a terrifying thought. In response, do you know what the man did? Bought the kid a new bike. See, the reason the kid crashed into the car, the man found out, was because the brakes, it had no brakes. So there's two problems. One of the problem is, the guy's car has a dent in it. And what the man is saying is, I will incur the cost of fixing the dent. I will incur the cost of the damage of the car. But not only that, I will solve the problem of why the car was dented in the first place. You don't have brakes. We as human beings, we incur a cost. I don't want you to think that we do damage to God when we sin. We can't. So then why is it a problem? Because God loves us, and when we sin, we're harming ourselves and we're harming other people. When we do things wrong, unintentionally or intentionally, when we miss the mark, when we cross the line, we harm ourselves and we harm other people. And, and so we're not directly harming God. We're harming what God loves. In the same way when your kid comes home being bullied at school, that causes you pain. But we're like a kid riding without bikes. We can't fix, or riding bike without brakes. That, simply fixing the dent isn't going to solve the problem. We need to fix the bike. So Jesus' sacrifice, his death, solves both of those problems. It deals with the cost, the loss. That's what forgiveness requires, absorbing the cost. But it also solves the problem. God's primary concern is not his honor. His primary characteristic is not his sovereignty or his reputation. His primary concern and his primary characteristic is love. And he loves us. He loves what he's created, including you. So Jesus comes as this broker, right? The go-between. Not just the broker, but the one who is our substitute to purify us. Not just to cover the debt, but to solve the problem of the debt. Riding a bike without brakes. Forgiveness is offered for free. You don't have to earn it. God's forgiveness for us makes possible reconciliation. So forgiveness is offered. It's up to you whether you want to take it. Maybe you're here in person or maybe you're watching online. And maybe you've never really heard it explained that way before. You always thought, you know, God's the angry God who killed a son in order to not kill you. That Jesus sort of intercepted God's anger. But then you go, but why do I want to hug a God who's angry with me? Or who was so angry with me that death was going to be the result until Jesus intercepted that. That's not the way it is at all. The Bible says that when, while we were still, the, the word is sinners, opposed to God. We oppose him, our back is turned, we're, we're, we're selfish, and part of us is drawn to him, but enough of us is not to keep our back turned. While we were still in that position, he sent Jesus to die for us, to make the way open, to, to open up that spiritual place where we can commune with God 
the creator who made you to love you. And I want to give you the offer today to, to say yes to that. Say yes to the offer of forgiveness. Yes to the offer of reconciliation. And it's as simple as ABC. A is admit your need. Acknowledge, yes, I have lived in self-destructive ways. I've, I've, I've worked to destroy myself. I can't solve that. I've, I've done damage to other people. And so I need that restoration. I need that forgiveness so I can be restored. Not just restored to being a good person. That's not the goal. The goal is to be in relationship with God. And then B is believe, which is a, a statement of trust. Trusting that Jesus has opened that way for you. Through his death, as a, as a ransom, as a, as a substitute, not to appease God's anger, but to make the way possible for you to be purified, to be in relationship with God. And then C is to commit your life to him. You can't keep doing living for all the, the old values, um, all the old agendas, all the old ambitions. But now our new trajectory is aiming at the God who made you to love you. And if this is a decision that you're making today for the first time, I wanna lead you in a prayer. Just pray something like this, make these your words. Father in heaven, I admit that I need you, that I am, that I have gone wrong. I need your forgiveness and your reconciliation. And I'm choosing to trust in Jesus today as my go-between, as my substitute. And I'm choosing to commit my life fully to you today. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Amen. And if this is a decision that you are making today for the first time, Connect with us at Crossings. Go, go to crossings.live and there's a button there uh, that says follow Jesus. Give us your contact info because we want to help you in this brand new spiritual journey, this brand new spiritual identity. We have, we have a, a pathway for you to walk in order to grow and learn and be confident in who you are as God's child. So fill in your contact info on the follow Jesus button and, and we'll get back to you on that. God's looking at each one of you with immense love. You can imagine, you know when you talk to somebody and they pull out their wallet and they start showing you pictures of their kids? God's got a picture of you in his wallet. We have to erase the idea of God who looks at you with anger and impatience. God looks at you with love. He's merciful, not capricious not unpredictable. His primary concern, his primary characteristic is his own, his love for you, not his own honor. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came with that message of love for you. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you that you're not an angry God up there just waiting for us to go wrong so you can smite us or whatever. But you've done what it takes, not just to cover our debts or faults or failings, but even to correct that part of us that can't stop doing wrong. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would increase in our knowledge of your love, in our knowledge of our, of our identity as your child. May that be what gets us out of bed in the morning, what motivates us through the day, what gives us the assurance 
that we are yours and nothing can take us from your grasp. Help us to live that out fully in every aspect of our lives. I thank you that you love us and you are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.